Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 72 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. We've spent about a dozen episodes now looking at the dimension of setting. And in this episode, I want to wrap up with a review of the insights that we've been exploring over those episodes. And to do this, I'm going to focus on the six principles that I think make for an excellent setting. The first principle is that a really compelling setting has to have a balance between two different and sometimes conflicting requirements. And they are that the setting has to be both credible and immersive. Now I have read so many books over the years where a good balance between these factors has really elevated the quality of the work. It's true in my own favorite genres of science fiction and fantasy, where I see the best work producing worlds and universes that are full of imagination, but where the author has also strived to present a credible setting. That doesn't just mean scientific accuracy, although it can certainly include that. It also means a setting that is faithful to its own internal rules. And that's particularly important in fantasy settings where the normal rules of nature don't necessarily apply. We see this in books like Andy Weir's The Martian, where part of the potency of the work is the attention to scientific detail. We see it in N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season, where the author has created a world which is geologically unstable, unlike Earth, never Nevertheless, it has credibility because the people and the culture of that world fit with the prevailing realities of the setting. There are also books from the fantastic and the weird traditions that I love. And again, the best work here includes settings of amazing scope and imagination, but presented with the discipline that gives the work credibility. From Tolkien's Middle Earth to China Mieville's exotic and cosmopolitan city of Baslag in books like the Perdido Street Station. From books in the cyberpunk genre by people like William Gibson through to the work of authors like M. John Harrison. The setting in these books are imaginative and immersive and fantastic in every sense, but within them and adding to their quality is that balance with credibility. We believe in the world, the universe that the author is creating. Now, even if you don't know all of the works I've just mentioned, you'll have seen this in some of the classic texts that are familiar to many of us. Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, for example, immerses us into the world of Regency culture. She creates great country houses, towns and balls. She creates villains we believe in. She creates the social dynamic of a family from that time with five daughters. She creates the dynamic of tension between two strong and clever people who are falling in love. It's also immersive and yet it's also credible. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the author has balanced credibility and immersiveness. When Lucy goes through the wardrobe into the land of Narnia, we believe in where she's going, in part because the author has grounded the story in the reality of what has gone before. And exactly the same thing happens with Harry Potter. The credibility of the mundane suburban life of the Dursleys is a great counterpoint to the immersive and fantastic nature of the world that Harry enters. The journey on platform nine and three quarters for Harry Potter is similar to the one that Lucy and her siblings take through the wardrobe. And in both cases, the story is anchored by the creative tension between the mundane worlds that the children leave behind and the fantastic worlds that they enter. And of course, this principle applies to other genres as well. The thriller or the police procedural both give scope for darker aspects of the imagination. But the best work is grounded in reality and credibility. 
good police practice, for example, as an element of research is essential in stories from these genres. It's no surprise that many of the books from those genres, in fact, acknowledge contributions from the police and other experts from the real world. Having that knowledge is the key to making this balance work. And this brings us to our second principle, which is research. In episode 70, I gave you an example of how research can operate at both the macro and micro level. In that episode, we looked at some sketched out examples of stories, including a version of the gunpowder plot. Now, historical narratives like this are a great example of how research can benefit the setting of a story. The writer can start with the big themes of setting, political, social, religious, geographical, economic and cultural issues, giving the whole story an underpinning and context. From there, the writer can begin to focus on the specifics, the environment of each scene, the actions and reactions of the characters. In Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, for example, the writer draws on the big themes of early 16th century and then focuses on the particular lives of the characters, real and fictional. Hilary Mantel spent five years on her research, making sure that the events in the book matched the historical record. All of this complements the principle of balancing the immersive and imaginative nature of setting with the discipline of credibility. So what kinds of research can we do? Well, this podcast can only really scratch the surface of these opportunities, but it's worth remembering that whilst the internet and book research is available to all of us writers, we should also think about other sources. If we are writing about contemporary themes, for example, or if we're concerned about the integrity of setting and character, or we want to make sure that we're portraying some specialist activity correctly, then interviewing an expert or somebody from the world in which we're taking the reader can yield great insights for us. This could cover a vast range of subjects from police work to forensic work to experts on the nature of the solar system to what happens in an operating theatre to the cultural and social norms of people groups the world over. It's especially important for contemporary writers to understand the nature of the social and cultural diversity around them, especially amongst those people who are not like them. Now to understand these insights better, when I came to deal with the challenge of writing about people who are not like me, for example, people who are different in terms of gender or race or sexual orientation, I turned to two experts, the writers Daniel Holzeolder and Nisi Shaw, and my conversation with them on this subject formed episode 60 of the podcast. If you haven't listened to that podcast, I'd encourage you to go and do that. But just to give you an outline now, from that conversation, the key things I learned, I think, were, first, that it is critically important to show respect to the person that I'm engaged with in the research, the person whose opinion I'm tapping into, the person who's giving me knowledge. And it's important for me to show value for the information that they're giving me. Second thing is to learn from the whole range of manifestations of a culture and a people and a society. So not just what people say, but food, festivals, rites, fashion, entertainment, music, all of these things give us a clue to the cultural realities. The third thing I learned was that as a writer, I need to understand the cultural and racial biases that I have within myself. This challenge to self-knowledge can be hard for us writers to deal with, but it makes us much better people and much better writers if we can deal with it. The fourth thing I learned was an understanding that if I fail to pay attention to all of these things, it's not just a moral failing, but it will lead to a craft failure, as Daniel Hoselder called it, a failure in my art. 
Now you can explore all of the issues relating to research in more detail in that episode, number 60, as well as a couple of other episodes where I've touched on it recently, and that's episode 64 and 67 of the podcast. So of course it's great to have all this research, but then that begs the question, how do we process and work with all of it to help us create setting? Now I think there are two habits which are really useful here, and they represent my third principle in creating setting, and I call them the magpie and the compost heap. Now, one thing I've noticed as I've interviewed a range of successful authors is that they seem to value these two particular habits when they're talking about the research that they're doing and turning that research into setting. The first of these is what I call the magpie habit after the reputation of that bird for seeking out shiny things and taking them and hoarding them. As authors, we're always on the lookout for shiny things, interesting or unusual facts, strange occurrences, notable and fascinating aspects of culture and history. To give you an example, when the writer Ian MacDonald discovered the legend of the mellified man, that is, a man who is mummified in honey, he knew that he wanted to bring that idea into his next book. And in fact, it does feature in The Dervish House. We should always be on the lookout for these interesting and unusual features, things which pique our curiosity, which strike in our imagination. They're able to tick so many of the boxes that are required for a good setting. They can help make a setting both more credible and more immersive. Now these shiny discoveries don't need to be used right away, of course. We can store them up and leave them to mature and they can sit in our memories and just wait for the right moment. And when that moment emerges, they may well have been adapted and connected with other ideas that we have for the work that we're doing. In this sense, we are also borrowing from the humble compost heap where things are chucked in and left just to settle and mature for a while. So let those ideas and concepts that you're picking up settle and mix and join together. And when you're working on a project, you will find that some of them come to the surface because their time is right and they can really add to your setting. If you want to hear more about that concept, you can check it out in episode 65 of the podcast. These connections that I've mentioned in relation to the way in which ideas can mature and link up are a good segue into the issue of how setting works with genre and how setting also links with other dimensions of writing like plot and character. And this brings us to principle number four. In episode 70, we looked at three different story outlines to illustrate the different aspects of setting. And because these were three very different stories from three very different genres, we had a chance to look at how some of the accepted tropes of genre fiction can work with and enhance the aspects of your story. So for example, the space opera subgenre of sci-fi gives the opportunity to use alien species and ships and planets as source material for setting. The genre also allows the opportunity for us to observe people in a close environment. Stories where people are stuck on a ship for a long period of time, for example. Another example, the classic ghost story genre allows the writer to explore variations on the dark and claustrophobic environments that we often see in stories from that source. The traditional trope of the Gothic setting can be used and adapted or even subverted to present contemporary environments as a contrast to usual historical settings. And we've already seen how historical drama gives us a rich vein to explore our setting. So use the accepted tropes of the genre that you're working in to help suggest aspects of the setting. That doesn't mean you have to follow those tropes slavishly. You can adapt them and develop them. You can turn them on their head and subvert them, but they're a useful primary source. 
Now the fifth principle is similar to this and this is about how setting can connect to other dimensions of the craft, especially character and voice. The characters and voice, for example, of Dickens' novel Oliver Twist support and complement the setting of Victorian London. Characters like Fagin and his little crew work wonderfully in the setting of Fagin's lair above the streets of London. In his novel Lunar New Moon, Ian MacDonald complements the harsh and barren setting of the moon with an equally hard and lean voice for the novel. The setting works with the voice, the two things together complementing each other. So in your own project, think about the voice that you're using and the characters that you've created. How can they complement and work with your setting to enrich and enhance the quality of your work? And this brings us to the sixth and most practical of the principles that I'm talking about in this episode. We've got all of these ideas, we've got all of this material. We need a really good way and a really practical way to put it into our story. Now, I believe that one of the key strategies for successfully presenting setting is to be sparse and specific. Now, this is a subject that I've touched on a number of times in the podcast, starting way back with episode three and then more recently in episode 69. And by sparse and specific, I mean presenting precisely the right amount of description and no more. So when you're describing setting and the scenes within setting, use specific detail and make it sensory. The smell of a book in a library, the sound of a child crying, the play of light on a wall, the particular color and style and texture of fabric in the clothing that your characters are wearing. These are all very specific details and they help to place the reader in the scene. Now I think that description needs to be sparse in the sense that you need enough of it to immerse the reader in the scene without giving too much. So how much is enough? Well, that will depend on the story you're telling. It will depend on the genre that you're working in. And perhaps most importantly of all, it will depend on your own personal style and your personal voice. I'm going to move on to voice and style as the next dimension that I explore in future episodes. But suffice it to say for now that when I talk about sparse and specific description, this is not a directive on the kind of voice that you could use. It's not a directive to pare everything back as radically as possible. Rather, it's saying be very precise and very sensory and give the reader as much as is required to immerse them in the scene that you're presenting. So let's sum all of this up. We've looked at six different principles from the work that we've done on setting. And these are, one, that the setting should be both credible and immersive. Two, that we should learn how to conduct our research at the macro and micro level and engaging in all of the opportunities that are around for doing that, but we should do it with respect. Third, we can borrow from the magpie and the compost heap in terms of collecting the interesting and intriguing ideas and things that we see and letting them just settle and mature in our mind until they're ready to be used. Fourth, setting can complement and work with the genre that we're working in and particularly the different tropes of that genre. We can take them and use them and twist them and subvert them. They can be a great source material for us. Fifth principle, setting can also work with other dimensions of writing, for example, character and voice. And the whole thing working together can help to present a very compelling setting. Finally, in terms of the practical application, our descriptions of setting should be sparse and specific and feature sensory information. These things really help to immerse the reader in an environment that they can feel involved with, but believe in as well. 
So I hope all this has been helpful to you. In this episode, I've referred to quite a number of books. They are The Martian by Andy Weir, published by Del Rey, The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, published by Orbit, Perdido Street Station by China Mieville, published by Macmillan, Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which is in the public domain, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, which is published by HarperCollins, The Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, published by Bloomsbury, Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel, published by Fourth Estate, The Dervish House by Ian MacDonald, published by Galantz, and Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, which is also in the public domain. So that's it for this episode. I'll get some show notes up on Pinterest. We also have a group on Goodreads. Please do join us there. Go to goodreads.com. Look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt. You can find more details about me on my website, andrewjchamberlain.com. Please do go there and drop me a line. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. That's all for now. And so until next time, thank you again for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.